Blog Talk Radio. This is Pat Solver with the Dr. Ways In on radio, and I love talking to entrepreneurs, and I especially love talking to serial entrepreneurs, so we're very fortunate today to have with us Neil Smiley, who's the founder and CEO of Loopback Analytics, which is a software-as-a-service platform that um, enables solution providers to put their solutions in front of multiple customers. And Neil and I were chatting just before the uh, show went on. And when we talk about customers, Neil has some big ones, including Walgreens, uh, Brookdale Senior Living, the largest uh, senior housing provider in the nation, and has um, has also worked with CMS. So we're talking about, about big customers here. And... Um, Prior to founding Loopback Analytics, um, he actually founded another company which was quite quite successful called Fitel, which was a population health solutions company that he uh, partially sold to Polaris Venture Partners. He got some capital, and I presume that that's uh, part of how he uh, got Loopback Analytics up and running. So, Neil, welcome. Thanks. Great to be here. Um, I thought there's so many things to talk about here because your your solution is is big and comprehensive. Um, so I thought that maybe we'd start out just by having you describe, um, you know, wh- what exactly is is it that you're doing, and give us a specific example, perhaps the example of how you worked with with Brookdale and um, and one of the um, I think health plans in in Texas. Maybe that would help to uh, put some meat on the bones here for the listeners. Sure. So Loopback is a company that's about six years old. Uh, We are definitely a child of health payment reform. Uh, Back in the old days when things were paid on a fee-for-service model, um, you know, there was not as much focus on quality. And what has happened is a lot of health systems have decided that it's not enough to just have a patient get out of the bed, go home. Uh, They now have to be concerned about well, what happens after they leave? And this is really a very disruptive time for health systems that are trying to figure out, well, how do they do a better job with that? Uh, One of the first places that this has showed up is uh, with readmission penalties, which started to kick in in October of 2012 for Medicare patients. But another place that's coming into big play is they say, well, gosh, we can't just uh, have our patients going anywhere. We need to make sure that we're working with post-acute care providers the form of skilled nursing facilities or home health agencies that really know what they're doing. And we we want them to be responsive not only in quickly being able to take a patient that we're sending to them, but we want to make sure that they're successful with their care. And this uh, is a relatively new phenomenon uh, with health systems really digging in and trying to understand what that looks like. Um, yeah, so one of the projects that, I'm sorry, I was just going to say it's a new phenomenon, but it's one that we have sorely needed for a long time. Yeah, and the reimbursement model is beginning to uh, both penalize uh, health systems that don't do this well and also reward ones that do it great. And uh, there's been a term that's sort of thrown out there, some called narrow networks. And initially people say, wow, narrow networks sounds like you might be limiting the choices that they have. But I think there's ways to do this where really what narrow networks mean 
are a tighter coordination between uh, components or participants within the healthcare continuum that historically have not worked together well at all. They've basically had disconnected or uncoordinated care, and they're trying to pull together to where they have much tighter handoffs, uh, more consistent ways in which information is passed from one party to the next, and also get to meaningful outcome data that everyone can agree on what happened. And uh, this is really an exciting time to see how you can bring together separate financial entity partners and put them together in ways that makes for more of a seamless care delivery. Uh, and that's really what our company has done, is we've created a software-as-a-service platform that allows separate financial entities that traditionally have sort of worked within their little own little silo to come together in a collaborative way in order to have more seamless care delivery as patients move from one care setting to another. And, you know, Neil, you talked earlier about um, when we were chatting prior to coming on air about, you know, community-based uh, care transitions. And it's really interesting because years ago I used to work with the domestic violence community and, you know, there were a lot of um, uh, community-based organizations that were taking care of victims of domestic violence, but they were all considered, in quotes, outside the system, right? They and, 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 and their financial models were all based on trying to get grants or donations or whatever, as opposed to being considered a legitimate part of the healthcare delivery system. Will your software as a service, will the way that you're looking at community-based care transitions start to loop in those kinds of essential providers um, who haven't really been able to figure out you know, how to make this work for themselves, their own, their own business model, as they're providing this, this you know, really important care to, um, uh, to, you know, to patients and, and, uh, and, and their families. Absolutely. And, and this is really, I think, an incredibly exciting trend. Uh, you have these community-based organizations, typically nonprofits, sometimes sort of quasi-government organizations like uh, area agencies on aging, uh, they've tended to submit, subsist on grants. Uh, the benefits they point to are primarily more anecdotal. Um, you know, gosh, we helped this person and they really benefited, but it's more stories-based uh, because they haven't had data. Um, and what's happening now is that there's a real push, specifically by Medicare, to say, gosh, uh, they should be an integral part of the healthcare delivery system. And many of the things that they're doing out in the home have an opportunity to reduce uh, problems before they start. And so one of the things that CMS did was they kicked off uh, what's called the Community-Based Care Transitions Program, or CCDP. It's kind of a mouthful of an acronym. But there's about 107 projects, I believe, that were approved uh, around the country. Each one of them are distinct from the standpoint that they required multiple competing hospitals within a concentrated geography to collaborate with a community-based organization to coordinate care transitions. Uh, and Loopback has gotten involved with many of these as a managing platform to integrate data from the hospitals and also manage the interventions that are provided by these community organizations and make it and do it in such a way that they can really track their outcomes and measure uh, the efficacy of what they're doing. And so, Neil, is there a way, as I listen to you talk about it, it's very exciting, um, you know, and as we're transitioning out of this 
you know, fee-for-service, toxic fee-for-service uh, environment into one where the payment's going to be based on, on these outcomes. Uh, are, is Loopback Analytics going to be able to help kind of divvy up the pie, so to speak? Um, how, how, how can your organization and working with these community-based organizations be sure that they actually are receiving some financial compensation for the services they provide as opposed to having to continue to, you know, um, live off of their donor base? Yeah, I, I think from a pricing standpoint, many of these organizations has just been a race to the bottom. Uh, who can do it the cheapest, and they really uh, they can't pay their people well. And I think that being able to point to savings that they're generating in the healthcare system, they have an opportunity to convert that to more of a pay-for-value kind of process. You know, when, when we think about how are analytics used in this process, there's really three key points that, that uh, analytics are relevant. The first one is how do you identify the right patients uh, proactively? in order to identify those that are likely to benefit from a particular intervention. So who's at risk, for example, of readmission, but more specifically, who's at risk and also likely to benefit from an intervention that a community organization provides, like say health coaching services or transportation or medication adherence. Uh, and then the next place where we use analytics is how do we measure the fidelity of the implementation? There's a lot of folks that have developed some really great evidence-based models that worked well in academia, and then they get translated out to the real world and pieces start falling off and the the way in which that's implemented is not consistent. And we've come up with a process to really be able to measure the fidelity with which something is executed so you don't confuse uh, you know, how you did something with uh, the methods themselves. And then the last piece kind of gets at the question you asked of how do you value it? Well, in some cases, you need more data than just the patients that you engage with. You need to be able to construct a, a reference case or a control set against which you would compare uh, your intervention group. And if you don't have that comparison set, you have no way to value what you've done. And this demands that you have an intermediary who has license or uh, authorized to look at not only the patients that were engaged, but also to a reference set in order to value uh, you know, how well the intervention worked. Right, sort of a control group. So I want to come back to each of those points because they're really fascinating points and ask you to uh, give me some specific examples so we can better understand it. And the first is identifying the patients uh, who are at risk and may benefit from specific kinds of interventions. And I, I guess also part of that is it's not only the patients at risk, but what specific intervention would would help them. Can you give me an example or two of actually how you have done that with one of your existing customers? Sure. So one of the partners that we work with is Walgreens. Um, obviously a very large pharmacy um, organization, but one of the other things they do is they provide medication uh, adherence solutions to health systems. And what Loopback does is we connect to the hospitals that are their clients with a real-time connection, and we're also bridging out to medication information, what kinds of medications do patients take, um, and we're constructing a risk model that says who's at risk of elevated readmission, but also specifically what is the nature of that risk. And if somebody, for example, is taking 10 or more medications, uh, they've had a pattern of gaps in refilling their meds on a timely basis, 
Uh, they may be on high-risk or hard-to-manage medications like blood thinners. These all go into mathematical model that says, here's a patient that left, you know, without assistance, has a high risk of not only being readmitted, but readmitted because of medication adherence problems. And we automate a process then of matching them to pharmacy consults that uh, then happen both at bedside, but also as that patient is discharged and goes out into their community to make sure they understand how their meds are to be taken, uh, that they're getting the assistance they need in uh, uh, getting their, their meds refilled if it's a chronic medication. And then we're matching that up to uh, how effective this program is to compare them against a control group to be able to measure specifically how well are we doing both in terms of managing, a, for example, reducing readmissions, but also in controlling costs. Okay, well, that's a very interesting um, I example, and I, I assume that you, know, you also have evaluated, let's take this specific uh, Walgreens example, um, evaluated how, how many or made an estimate of how many readmissions might have been avoided and how much money um, has been saved over the course of when this program's been in place? That's right, and, and depending on what gets interesting about uh, healthcare now, of course, people get paid in a lot of different ways. So in some cases, the buyer of such a service may be a hospital because they're trying to manage readmission penalty. So for them, it's the avoidance of financial penalties for hospitalizations, for, re for readmissions. In other cases, it may be a payer uh, who's looking at how this impacts total cost of care. Um, so we have to be, you know, somewhat adaptive because people get paid in a lot of different ways in healthcare these days. And and how do you get paid? So we try to be adaptive uh, along with our customers. So in some cases we get paid a subscription fee, which is a a rate per hospital. In other cases we get paid a uh, per patient fee uh, based on a patient that's reached a certain point of engagement, whatever that intervention may be. So it's a it's a so, you know subscription recurring revenue kind of model. Oh, okay, and um, uh, so you're, it's not a fee for service. It's not I delivered five interventions to you know fifty thousand people that equals so much money. It's something else that gets closer to the outcomes that your customers are hoping. Well, in some cases, we sort of get progress payments from the standpoint that we may get paid on a fee for service, but it's with accountability. So there's a measurement loop as part of that that's measuring the effectiveness. And we're tracking return on investment. So we have one program, for example, we get paid on a fee-for-service, but if you don't hit certain markers, you lose the ability to participate under the program. And so unlike oh, okay. fee-for-service, where you just do more of it, and you know whether it works or not is neither here nor there, this is a, a, a there's an accountability component that if you want to stay with the program, um, you have to produce results. So it's a little bit of a variation on the theme of the way population health programs have been paid in the past. Right. 
Um, okay, well, uh, you know, I, w- I wanted to uh, talk about these other two points because they were they were also I thought very interesting. So you talk about fidelity of implementation, and I have to tell you, this is going to seem like a far out analogy, but we've been spending a lot of time uh, in the back end of our website, and 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 you know, just have to get one little piece of code, you know, one little letter or dot or, or whatever wrong, and and all, and all of a sudden, although everything else is good, the whole thing doesn't work, and and so. So what you're talking about are all of these different kinds of programs that have come out of different academic institutions that under those tight circumstances have been shown to make a difference. Um, but, you know, the question, and they always said this about the, um, uh, pre, the pre-diabetes study, that nobody could really replicate it in, in real life, what was, what was in the original big uh, trial of, of pre-diabetes care to prevent the progression to diabetes. Um, so, it, so that's what I presume you're talking about. If you could give us, a, you know, an example or two of of how somebody tried to take one of those great programs, roll it out in, in into a, you know, into real life, not non academic real life, and and because they missed one or two parts, it ended up not working. Do you have some examples like that? Yeah, well, I'll give you an example where it sort of worked the other way. Uh, in other words, there were steps involved with an evidence-based model that out in the real world, when they tested it, figured out that that step not only didn't add to a better outcome, but actually added cost. So uh, again, going back to these community service organizations, one of the common interventions is to provide a health coach to patients that uh, need a little extra assistance in understanding how to navigate the health system, but also understand their treatment plan. So, you know, social workers assigned to them at bedside and then follows them home, does a home visit, and then there's a series of phone calls. And um, one of the key steps with this uh, evidence-based model was to do a courtesy call prior to the home visit. And uh, you know, by tracking the data, we found that the courtesy call actually resulted in a higher level of patients effectively declining the home visit to follow, which is where, where the real value came in. So making little tweaks like that, we're able to see uh, how can we make subtle changes in the overall flow and what happens then to the outcomes that are created? And similarly, you know, if, if you have a program supposed to have a certain, you know, a phone call happens within 48 hours of discharge, what happens if that doesn't happen till 72 hours or, you know, a week later? Uh, we have a feedback loop that allows us to measure that specifically. Um, and so, you know, if somebody says, well, I'm doing program XYZ, uh, we can say, well, are you really? And if it's deviating, does that deviation either help or hurt the end result? Yeah, well, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. So in a way, you're supporting um, not exactly leaning, but, but that kind of a process where you examine all the, all the elements of a workflow and try and have only the ones that really add the value at the end as opposed to all the extraneous things that, that we thought would work but didn't actually work the way we thought they would. So yeah, your and last most, point oh, – I'm sorry, go ahead. What most folks do is they, they rarely implement an evidence-based model verbatim. They'll do their own little, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and put it together. And so the combination, they're using proven components – but they're, they're assembling them in what can be a fairly unique way. The challenge they have is they don't really have a good framework to know whether the, the bits they selected and the bits they left out uh, was a good decision. And this is really where our feedback loop becomes really important 
uh, so they can explicitly measure uh, what's the net effect of them making these modifications over time. Oh, that's great. And then your your last your last of the three um, items was how do you how do you value it? Um, tell us more. Yeah, if if I have a solution provider, um, we'll go back to our Walgreens example, um, and they're providing a medication adherence program for a health system. The health system is usually not too keen on giving Walgreens all their data. Uh, they're perfectly happy to. Uh, provide information that's necessary to do the job. And in fact, under HIPAA rules, they're really restricted in how much they can pass through. And so uh, typically Walgreens would only receive the data for which they've actually engaged. Well, that when it comes to valuing the impact of the program, this can leave a bit of a dilemma because now if you only see the ones you engage, how do you create a reference group? And so Loopback then can serve as a data intermediary. We enter, enter into a, a business associates agreement. It's basically a data custodian relationship between Loopback and the health system. And we have a similar relationship between us and our solution providers, in this case, Walgreens. But then we can assemble a reference set uh, in order to be able to measure uh, what the outcomes were in ways that both you know, the purchaser, in this case the health system, and Walgreens can agree on, on what those numbers should be. Um, and that convener role, I think, is going to be critically important as the whole system moves to pay for value because it's a very common problem of being able to be able to see the whole set in order to put an intervention group into the right context. Yeah, you're right. And I, I'm assuming when you do the reference groups, you're applying the, you know, the best of um, uh how we would do it in a in a clinical trial, for example, to be sure that the reference group is appropriate and not in some way biased. Yeah, and there's a bunch of different ways to do that. Whether it's to uh, you know a prior period or you know seasonally adjusted group, or maybe uh, you know a formal control group. So there's there's a number of different angles that you can look at a particular program to ensure that it's working as you think it is. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's a that's a fantastic addition. So, um, what I wanted to to um, uh, close with is um, coming back to this issue of of narrow networks and whether they're good or bad. And and it seems like you know the term narrow is is the one that everybody equates with. Oh, you're restricting my choice. Maybe what we really need to do is to come up with another name. But can you talk particularly about um, health plans, have you worked with, are they your customers as well? Yes. So about how health plans could work with you or, um, and I think that's that's probably the best example, to be sure that they end up with a network of providers that really is, uh, you know, the high quality, of not, not, not just the lowest cost, but truly, you know, uh, meets the triple aim in terms of providing the best value for the best cost. And again, if you can give us a specific example, that would be great. Sure, so what's what's happening with a lot of payers is that they're, they're uh, transferring some of their risk out to providers in the form of accountable care organizations, which essentially provider organizations that then become bearers of risk through uh, you know, a gain-sharing arrangement with the payer or through bundle payments, where they say, um, I'm gonna pay a flat fee, you providers, you all get together, you figure it out. 
right? And so instead of paying out the little piece parts, now there's a convener that puts together a narrow network of providers that work together in a very intimate way. They may be separate financial organizations. They may even have other books of business. But for this particular population, they've agreed to work together for some kind of set price. And that's really where the narrow network term, I think, primarily applies, is when you have one of these new, typically provider-based organizations, but a payer has come along and, and transferred some of their risk to them, either through a gain-sharing arrangement or through bundle payment, and now they've got to collaborate in ways that they can make sure they can de deliver both high quality as well as uh, lower costs. And that's where we're seeing these show up. And how, how can you help, um, for example, if I'm a, a physician group and, and, and I'm establishing a physician-led ACO as opposed to a hospital-led ACO, and I'm trying to figure out you know, I've never cared about who my refers were before. I sent some to my good buddy Bob down the street, and you know, <laughs> you know how the the referrals, uh, particularly physician to physician referrals. But now that I'm being held accountable, how how can you help me, or or does Loopback do that work to help me understand how do I build my network in the first place to be sure that I have the I have the right folks in there. So I know I know I'm still gonna have to do all the whole, all the hard work after I get my referral network in place to be sure that we can work together and get the outcomes. But how do I decide to invite this guy and not invite the other guy? Well it it, it really starts with some blocking and tackling kinds of stuff. The first thing you have to do is where are my patients going? <laughs> uh oftentimes uh that basic tracking is difficult and there's a lot of uh, visibility gaps. So one of the things that Loopback does is we can have that sort of data custodian relationship with multiple players um, and then establish a master person index, uh, kind of a technical term, but allows us essentially to put together a continuity of care record that spans all those different players. So. If you're an ACO, you can begin to get a sense of saying, well, where are my patients? Where are they going? Who's who's providing care to them? And then using that same framework also begin to get some really solid outcome data because this is another problem. There's there's very difficulty getting good measurements. And and usually that's not, okay, I'm going to kick you out because you have bad, you know, you're not producing good outcomes. It's it's often you're starting a quality improvement process where you're learning and says, okay, we didn't do well here. What happened? How can we change? Was it my problem when I sent them to you or was it your problem and how you received them? And we've seen some great uh, collaboration that just wasn't present prior to some of these networks being formed. Um, much more cooperation, better data sharing, um, things that ultimately I think will benefit uh, patients and lower costs. Uh, yeah, very interesting. So um, I'm trying to think if I can sum up loopback analytics and say that one of your primary functions is you're a silo buster. Yeah, we would love to connect the care <laughs> continuum in ways that, that uh, reduce the burden on patients of having to navigate these silos alone. And I think increasingly providers want to do that because they now have new incentives that make that a good business. Yeah, I got to tell you, it's 
one of the most exciting. If you combine what's going on with the payment reform, what's going on with delivery system reform, with the ACOs, which what's going on with companies like yours who are, you know, big data analytic companies, and then the rest of digital health, it's probably the most exciting time in healthcare. I think in the last yes. as long as I as long as I've been in healthcare. And um, I want to thank you very much for sharing with us what uh, all the interesting things that Loopback Analytics are doing. And um, uh, I wish you the best of luck as you continue to forge these uh, partnerships and make things transparent that, that, that used to be uh, obscure. So thank you very much, Neil. Well, thanks, Pat. I really enjoyed it. <laughs>